The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to the latest episode of Baseball History 101. This episode is going to be out the boss, George Steinbrenner. A lot of y'all know him, the Yankee owner. Um, I reckon I'll let Matthew start off yes. with um, some some of some facts about his childhood. So, George Steinbrenner was born on July fourth, nineteen thirty, in Rocky River, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. And he, you know, is he was the only son. He was one of three kids, but he was the only son of his parents. Henry George Steinbrenner II and Rita Steinbrenner. Um, his dad was a world had been a world cra- class track and field hurdler while at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT, and he graduated there with engineering in 1927, first in his class as a distinguished scholar in naval architecture. So this this is good to know because his dad owned a biz- owned a shipping business. He was, you know, it, that's how the Steinbrenners got their money was through shipping, like shipbuilding and shipping, and that's how they got their money. And you know, it, it, you know, being on the Great Lakes, that's where they would do their business on the Great Lakes. And um, you know, his naval architecture, you know, his distinguished scholarship in naval architecture helped him with that. Um, let's see. And, you know, at age nine, uh, his dad made George, uh, he staked George to a couple of hundred chickens and he, he peddled hens and their eggs door to door. So that's how he got his start in the business. You know, other kids had like milk routes, George Steinbrenner sold eggs door to door. And George quoted from that day, you know, from that day he quoted, um, I learned a lot about business from raising chickens, he told Sports Illustrated. Half of my customers began buying because they were afraid of me, <laughs> which would serve him on later in life. And then in 1944, at age 14, he entered the Culver Military Academy in northern Indiana, graduating in 1948. So that was his high school. It was a private, obviously a private military academy. And then he went on to Williams College in Massachusetts, where he earned his bachelor's degree. And he was a member of the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. So if any DKE, is that the... Yep. Any DKE listeners out there? They refer themselves as Deeks. Deeks. So any Deeks out there, George Steinbrenner is one of you. So that's cool. And he was also an accomplished hurdler on the varsity track and field team. So he just like his dad, he was on the track and field team. But something that... 
his dad always said, I was always better than you. He always never let George, da- never let George forget that him, he was better than at track than him. He always, <laughs> he always let him, let his son know that he was better. But anyway, other than being on the track team, he also served as sports editor of the Williams record, which I believe is the, yeah, that's the Williams college uh, newspaper. Yep. And he played piano in the band and played halfback on the football team in his senior year. And then after he graduated, he joined the Air Force and was commissioned second lieutenant and was stationed in Lockburn Air Force Base in Columbus, Ohio. And so once he got his honorable discharge in 1954, he did postgraduate study at Ohio State University. So any Buckeye fans listening there, George Steinbrenner's one of y'all. And he got his master's degree at Ohio State in physical education. And he also met his wife, uh, his future wife, Elizabeth, in or she went by Joan or Joanne, or I guess that's how they pronounce it. Elizabeth Joanne Zieg, but she went by Joanne. And it, they met in Columbus and they got married in April, of, uh, I'm sorry, May of 1956. But while he was at Ohio State, he was a graduate assistant on the Ohio State Buckeyes football team under the legendary... Woody Hayes. That's a fun fact that I didn't expect to get out of George Steinbrenner. Yeah. So George Steinbrenner, you know, he has a football background. Not only did he play in college, he was also a graduate assistant at Ohio State. And that year, in 1954, they won the national championship. They went undefeated and they won the Rose Bowl. So not only does George Steinbrenner have multiple World Series rings with the Yankees, he has a national championship ring with the Ohio State Buckeyes as a graduate assistant. There's not a lot of people that can say that they have both of those things. He is in a class of himself. And then after that year in Ohio State, and after he got his master's degree, he served as assistant football coach at Northwestern in 1955, and then at Purdue from 56 to 57. So he stayed, you know, he stayed in the Big Ten afterwards. And then after the 57 season, Steinbrenner joined Kinsman Marine Transit Company in 1957. Which is it was his family's company. Yeah, it's really cool because his grandfather was in a spot and he needed to come help out, and he did. And, yeah. Um, so he he left football behind to go help out in the family <coughs> business. Um, and his granddad had bought that business in 1901. So in 1957, he's joining in to help help out. Yeah. And um, he worked really hard to successfully revitalize the crew and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a tough market conditions. For him, and he led it back to profitability. Uh, they made a lot of money on moving grain and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, with the help, they got a small loan from a New York bank. They purchased the company from his family, which is kind of where the start of his financial wealth began. Yeah, and um, he became a part of a group that bought the American Shipbuilding company. Corp company, which you mentioned earlier. Yep. And then he became its chairman and CEO in 1967. Yeah, and, and then by by 1972, their gross sales were a hundred million dollars annually. So you know him being the boss man is probably getting the chunk. Yeah. Now, even though he entered the shipping, the shipbuilding business, the family business, sports never left him, obviously. But even before he owned the Yankees, and after his, in between being an assistant football coach as well as being the Yankees owner, he's. He still had the sports in his blood. In 1960, when he was 30 years old, 
he entered the sports franchise business for the first time with the uh, Cleveland Pipers of the National Industrial Basketball League. His dad was not happy about that. Right. He, his dad was against it, but George, being George, he got his way. And, you know, they did some... Uh, let's see. Okay. So he hired... So as his, as owner of the Pipers, Steinbrenner hired John McClendon, who became the first African-American excuse me, African-American coach in professional basketball and persuaded Jerry Lucas to join the team instead of a rival in the, instead of a team in the NBA. So I think Jerry Lucas might've been a guy he met while he was at Ohio state because that's where he played college ball. Yeah. Um, he played for that team and then he was an NBA star. Also, he's got a gold medal in 60 Olympics. Yeah. That was in Rome. Um, so it's probably an Ohio state connection where he got, yeah, Jerry Lucas to come. It's like, hey, you can stay in Ohio, you know, just come play in Cleveland. I'm not sure if that was in the tail end of Jerry Lucas's NBA career or at the forefront, though. Well, let's look it up. Let's see. He played from. I think it was before. It was before the NBA because his NBA career started in '63. From '63 to '74, he played with the Cincinnati Royals. San Francisco Warriors and New York Knicks. So this was before he joined the NBA. And if y'all aren't familiar with Jerry Lucas, just go to his Wikipedia and look. He's a seven-time All-Star. He's an NBA All-Star Game MVP, three-time NBA All-First Team. So even though he played way back in the day, he had a uh, really good career. And he had a national championship ring with the uh, Ohio State Buckeyes in 1960. And he was teammates with the great Bobby Knight. And he is also in both the basketball Hall of Fame and the College Basketball Hall of Fame. So yeah, so he, that'd be somebody to look up if you're a basketball fan as well. He was a great player, and you know, probably because of that Ohio State connection, George Steinbrenner is like, "Hey, come play for us. Come play for the Pipers." That's an assumption, but yeah, I mean, that's I mean, I'm sure there's more to it, but from what we can gather, that's probably probably had something to do with it. Excuse me, and then the Pipers switched leagues the next year to the professional. Uh, American Basketball League from in 1961, which was founded by the Harlem Globetrotters owner Abe Saperstein, and then the league experienced financial problems. Let's see. And McClendon resigned halfway through the season in protest, but it doesn't really say what that protest was. But the Pipers won the first half of the split season. And so Steinbrenner replaced McClendon with former Boston Celtics star Bill Sharman, and the Pipers won the ABL championship in 1960 for the 1961-62 season. So how cool is that? Like, the, <laughs> I mean, that's at 30, like 31, 32 years old, Steinbrenner found success in professional sports with the with the Cleveland Pipers. Right, this was before in the, the first year of the in program. The, in the first year, yeah, you know, you know, I mean that this is you know, this obviously could help you know feed his ego. Like, hey, I know what I'm doing running sports teams. Mm-hmm. Right, this was an early indication that he knew what he was doing. Yep. You know, and there may be some people out there who did not know that about Steinbrenner. He didn't. They didn't know that. So like. You're going to learn a lot of things with this podcast, man. <laughs> and I, th- I think the second season of their franchise really showed him more. Because in their second season, they lost a lot of money, him and his partners. Yeah. And he was savvy enough to be able to buy it out. And it said, from everything I've read, it took him a couple of years to pay it all off. Yeah. 
But even though the second year he was such a savvy businessman that he was able to pay debts and buy his partners out and all of that. Yeah. So. so. And then <laughs> he turned his attention to Broadway. Which is random. <laughs> Which is so random. Then there's a New York connection there also. Yeah, I mean, there you go. So he was involved with a short-lived night play in 1967 called 90 Day Mistress. And let's see. And then he also invested in some more shows, including the 1974 Tony Award nominee for Best Musical Seesaw and the 1988 Legs Diamond. Which was a flop. Yeah. So, okay, that's... Wow. (laughs) Okay, and so now we're getting into the 70s. Now, I do have to mention, in 1971, and I read this in the book, Steinbrenner, The Last Line of Baseball by Bill Madden, which I would highly recommend, great biography. In 1971, Steinbrenner and some other potential investors tried to buy the hometown Cleveland Indians. And at the time, the Indians were owned by a guy named Vernon Stouffer, who was part of the Stouffer frozen food family. And I believe Stouffer's based in Ohio, or at least in Cleveland. I think I got a couple of those in my freezer out there right now. Yeah. So, and by this time, the Indians weren't doing well. Now, they weren't called the Guardians, so we're not calling them the Guardians. They were, were doing historically accurate. They were the Indians. So, we're, we're going to refer to them as the Indians. So anyway, I'm going to 100% screw up whenever baseball starts back with this lockout thing. We don't know when it could be, but I'm going to 100% screw up and call them the Indians again. Right. So, but for historical purposes, they were called the Indians. So yes. I don't want to hear anybody trying to say, no, we're they're called the Guardians now. That's not the point. They're the Guardians now. They were the Indians then. Right. This That's the present. This is, this is the past. So this is baseball history, not baseball present. So Steinbrenner... And let's see, who else was a part of this? You know, they tried to buy the Cleveland Indians. Him and a a couple of guys, a guy named Thomas H. Ralston, who was the president of Ralston Company Brokerage Firm. And apparently he was the guy who tried to assemble the investors. Uh, Oh, he was the guy who assembled investors that enabled Steinbrenner to purchase a bunch of the shares for American Shipbuilding Company in 1967. So Steinbrenner guy, you know. Let's see. Robert D. Story, who was a prominent black attorney who was the director of the Cleveland Aid Society. Ted Bonda, one of the founders of APC, uh, APCOA, Apacoa Parking, I guess is a parking, I guess like security or like tickets or whatever. Um, Sheldon Gruen and Ed Ginsburg, partners in a Cleveland law firm. And Al Rosen, who was a former Cleveland Indians player and MVP in 1953. And he was executive for a brokerage firm called Batch and Company, B-A-C-H-E. So those guys got together and they wanted to buy the Cleveland Indians from Vernon Stouffer. Mm-hmm. Right? A guy and, named Howard, Gabriel Howard Paul. Gabriel Paul is the guy that put them in contact with Edger. Yeah. And it, he was a longtime front office cat as the general manager of the, what, the Reds, the 45, Houston Colt 45s. Yep. Which is a sweet name. I wish they hadn't changed it. Yeah. And then the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. And then eventually the Yankees. Um, yeah. And so by this time, they want to buy the Cleveland Indians from Vernon Stouffer. 
And in December of 1971, they meet at a Cleveland restaurant called the Pewter Mug, which was one of Steinbrenner's favorite restaurants, and a lot of things happened there. And so they were going to, it was all set up. They called the press down there. They were going to have a press conference of a potential sale of the team. And uh, I'm going back to the book. It's been like quite some time since I read the book, but I have the book with me. We can, we're going to talk about it. But, um, so they meet up at the pewter mug and they call, they call Stouffer. And Stouffer apparently was in Arizona. So the day was uh, December 6th, 1971. And they were negotiating, and they negotiated with Vernon's son, Jimmy Stouffer. And the group, the group's offer was like $8.6 million to buy the Indians. And they would absorb like the $300,000 debt that the Indians accumulated with being just a very bad team and people were not coming. Like the Indians of the 1670s were not a very good team, you know. And, um, you know, it was going to be a handshake deal. It was a handshake deal between George and Jimmy. Like, they had the deal done, but they had to get Vernon's approval of it. But the thing is, Vernon was in Arizona. And so they had to call Vernon in Arizona. Right? Or actually, no, I'm sorry. Vernon was going to call George and say, and, and like, you know, okay the deal. Like, after he got all the facts from Jimmy. Uh, so he calls Steinbrenner at the pewter mug. Unfortunately, Vernon Stouffer may have had a couple of mar- more than two martinis at over lunch. So he was probably drunk and <laughs> Stouffer turned out, uh, you know, straight up told Steinbrenner in a slurred voice, I'm not doing this deal. You and your friends are trying to steal my team. You've already leaked the sale price to the press. I know I can get at least ten million for it, so forget about it. I won't be pressured. I'm not selling to you. And Steinbrenner was embarrassed. His face turned white when he heard the news, and so they had to go tell the media that was already assembled at the pewter mug that the deal was off. They were not going to buy the Indians, and so that was his first attempt to try buy a major league team. So then, the next year in '72, CBS. Everybody knows CBS. It's basic cable. Yeah. We watch late night shows on it, watch the news on it. Um, they owned the New York Yankees. Um, and their their chairman, William Paley, had told the team president, who was an employee of the Yankees, E. Michael Burke, that they intended to sell the club. Yeah. And, um, and he even offered to sell it to Burke if he could find financial backing. Yeah, um, and so on January 3rd of 1973 Steinbrenner and my Orny partner Burke led a group of investors included Niederlander mm-hmm. Lester Crown John DeLorean which I'm assuming is the car maker I believe that's the same guy yeah yep that's the guy um, Nelson Bunker Hunt and Marvin L. Warner who was born in Birmingham, Alabama nice former of the Birmingham Stallions and he created a bunch of banks and stuff. Um, he was big in the Rays, um, the Tampa Bay Rays development. Yeah. 
Um, they they bought the Yankees the for ten million dollars, but Steinbrenner later revealed they didn't buy for ten million dollars. They bought them for eight point eight. <laughs> they bought two parking garages in New York City as a part of the deal, and, and then, then CBS bought them back as oh. a as a like a tax move kind yeah. of deal. Now and they're like, I, it, there's pictures in the book. Uh, Steinbrenner last line of baseball of the they they bought the Yankees and E. Michael Burke who was the president of the Yankees during their sucky years which has been chronicled in the book Dog Days by Philip Bash which I've mentioned previously um, Michael Burke is a well-dressed man very sharp he's a very sharp-dressed man he's got kind of longish hair it's kind of a comb over but it looks like he's got a lot of hair on his head He's he stands out and, you know, the the picture of the New York Daily News, the front cover, it's, the headline says, 10 million buys Yankee, CBS sells out to Burke, slat, uh, comma, 11 others. Steinbrenner obviously is not in the headline. Like, his name's not in the headline, but I'm showing Patrick the picture. So here it is. Here's the headline. And Michael Burke's talking on the podio. Oh, he does have a good head of lettuce. Yeah. And there's a Yankee, it says Yankees in the background, the, the big banner. And Steinbrenner is standing in the background listening to Burke talk and he's got his hands crossed and he's kind of got like a pouty face on his face, you know. I feel like I feel like knowing Steinbrenner as a fan of baseball in the 90s is very accurate. Yeah. He always had that stoic businessman, I'm the boss, let's make this happen. Yeah. So even even early 1973 was Steinbrenner who had whose hair was not gray yet. So he had darker hair. Of course, it's a black and white photo, but still, you get the point. He was a younger guy. He was like 42, almost 43 when he bought the Yankees with Burke and the others. And then the picture below it on the page, you know, everybody's all smiles. Like Gabe Paul's talking. Steinberg's on the left. He's looking off to the side, smiling. Uh, Burke's looking up, smiling. Everybody's like, yeah, we bought the Yankees. This is great, you know. But here's the thing. The union with Steinbrenner and Burke did not last. Now, I have to go find it in the book. It's gonna, it would take a while. But basically, there was some argument. And Steinbrenner basically yelled at Burke like right right after the season started, like in mid-April. And eventually, Burke resigned because of that. And I guess Steinbrenner bought his shares. So what happened was um, the announced intention that was Burke was going to continue to run the club. But then he found out that um, Gabe Paul had been brought in as a senior executive. Yeah. Which, you know, stepping on a little toes there. Yep. Um, and that reduced his authority, so he quit his presidency in April of 73, even though he remained a minority owner in the club. Well, that's cool. But yeah, but like you could, like I said, if you want to read more about Michael Burke, he's well prominent in the Dog Days book by Philip Bash. And I think he wrote, I think Burke wrote autobiography too. So if you want to read more about him, and see his luscious head of hair and his spiffy clothes. You can, you can check that out there. So, nineteen seventy-three, Steinbrenner's first season. Right, they're playing at Classic Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium turned fifty years old that day, or that year. Excuse me. And Yankee Stadium was showing its age. Right, it's part of the classic ballparks, and. It was showing its age, and Steinbrenner's looking around, and he's like, yeah, 
we need to do something about this. And a lot of play, and a lot of people did not like Steinbrenner for doing this, like baseball purists. But he decided to, after the '73 season, they were gonna the Yankee Stadium was gonna go through a massive, and I mean massive, renovation. They were gonna give it a huge facelift. And for the '74 and '75 season, the Yankees played at Shea Stadium, which you, which most people think. Are you crazy? Why would the Yankees play at Chase Stadium? But that's how it was back then. From 74 and 75, the Yankees played their home games at Chase Stadium. I mean, most, I'm sure some people were like, what? Like, mind blowing. Like, thinking about, it, like, wait, wait, what? The Yankees at Chase Stadium? Well, we're in Alabama. That'd be like Auburn playing home games at Bama. Right. Like, if Auburn, like, if Jordan Hare Stadium had to go through a massive renovation and they couldn't play a season at Jordan Hare, you know, you try to play that at Alabama. I would I would play the whole games on the road. Or like go play like at UAB's new stadium, Protective Stadium or something. You know. But anyway, so nineteen seventy three I gotta look at we gotta find the seventy three Yankees record. We could probably edit this out, you know, but nineteen seventy three Yankees. Now mind you, the Yankees uh this was during their dog years. They were not very good. Now, that was also the year that the Mets, the Crosstown Mets, were nationally pennant. 73 Yankees, they finished in fourth place in the AL East with an 80-82 and 82 record. And they were managed by Ralph Houck, who was previously successful with the Yankees in his first stint from 61 to 63. And he led them to three American League pins and two World Series championships. And this was during his second stint from 66 to 73 where they couldn't regain that magic that they did, you know, and they were just not a good team. And so after the last game at the after the last game at the pre-renovated Yankee Stadium, which September 30th, 1973, last game at the pre-renovation Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium, they lost to the Tigers 8 to 5. So I apologize. They did not win. They lost 8-5 to five to the Tigers. And so that was a sad day, you know. But fans, like I said, they stormed the field. They got old seats, you know. And so for two years, the Yankees were in exile in the Queens at Shea Stadium. While Yankee Stadium was going through massive renovations. Like the, you know, if you see pictures of, old pre-renovation Yankee Stadium. They have the the white gates. I'm trying to think of the, the correct name for it, but they're like gates. You know, the white gates on the top of the of the of the grandstand. You know, that classic stuff. Like when they when they finally fixed when they finally renovated, they took it out. Like they took out those gates and they kind of put them like in the outfield like the outfield wall, like where the scoreboard is. It kind of like took them there. But it just it looked so different. But the funny thing is, while the Yankees were playing their home games at Shea Stadium, the 1975 season, Shea Stadium played host to the Mets, the Yankees, the New York football giants, and the New York Jets. All four teams shared Shea Stadium that season. What a logistical nightmare. Yes, it was an absolute nightmare. Somebody actually wrote a book about it. I've not read it. 
At least for a few weeks, because football kind of starts as baseball kind of ends. Yeah, at least I mean, for a few weeks, it had to be a train wreck. At least for that, like you know, the beginning of, of like August and September, not October, because neither Yankees nor Mets made the playoffs that year. But you know, at least August September, trying to <laughs> trying to work through all that, and then poor groundskeepers trying to make the field playable after all that. Oh man! But anyway, so Ralph Falk. You know, he's gone after the 73 season. And their off season right here is where it really gets wild. And Steinbrenner starts becoming the boss. Right. And willing and dealing the way he did his whole career. Yeah. Because this is this is the off season where he um, tried to hire Oakland's manager. Dick Williams. Yep. Yep. And he had resigned after leading the team to his back-to-back World Series titles. Yeah. Because he wasn't happy with Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's. And he, he, he almost became the Yankees owner. I mean, not Yankees owner. Sorry, Yankees manager. But he was hung up in a legal battle, right. right? Finley was like, no, you're not going to the Yankees. And so... I still control your contract. It's right. not like today where there's buyouts and, and Amer- stuff like that. Yeah, like I think yesterday or on Monday, the Hall of Fame released an article about Williams almost becoming a Yankee manager. Because Williams is in the Hall of Fame as a manager. I, you know, you can look it up. And, like, Charlie Finley's like, no, I don't want – no, you're not going to the Yankees. I don't want you to go to the Yankees. You won me two titles. You're still under contract with me. You're right. staying here. And so and, – and the American League president, Joe Cronin, sided with Finley. And so Dick Williams didn't go to the Yankees. And then later that season, I guess Finley let him become the manager of the California Angels. And so they had to sell for Bill Vidrin. Yep, former manager of the Pirates. Yep. He also played for the Pirates, too. He was a member of the 60, 1960 World Championship team. And so, for 74-75 in their exile at Shea Stadium, Vidrin was the manager. And he was pretty good, but, like, they didn't get the playoffs. And so, 1976 rolls around. The Yankees are back at, the, at Yankee Stadium, which some purists think that's still, like, that's Yankee Stadium. Some some people call it Yankee Stadium number two, but I still argue that that's the same building. It's just different. You know, they didn't tear, totally tear it down. They renovated. They renovated. It was. It's a, not like they did this last time around, which I think was a mistake, and tore it down and built a new one. Right. It wasn't like what they did in two thousand eight. You know. Why would you tear down a cathedral? I I still struggle with that. Yeah, we can talk about that the later in the episode because this was all Steinbrenner's idea. He yeah. wanted a new stadium, but uh, they go to the new Yankee Stadium. Sorry. They go to the newly renovated Yankee refurbished Stadium. Refurbished Yankee, Yankee Stadium. Stadium. <laughs> right. And this time they have a new manager in Billy Martin, who played for the Yankees in the 50s. He was part of those great teams in the 50s. And he also was a good manager with the Twins and the Tigers and the Texas Rangers. The Twins and the Tigers, he led, uh, he won AL division championships. But he, he, he spent a short time in both both cities because he couldn't get along with the owners. I got a uh, fun Billy Martin fact right here. He was fired and rehired five times by Steinbrenner. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. Because <laughs> the 1980s was just wild with Steinbrenner. Anyway. So what so, are you doing for me now? Yep. Yeah, he's... he's so 76, the Yankees get out of their funk that they were in for most of the decade and they win the American League pennant. Well, first off, they win the American League East. 
Hold on, we go. They win the American League East with a 97-62 record. And then they beat Kansas City, the Kansas City Royals, in five games in the ALCS. And everybody remembers that home run by Chris Shambliss. That that walk-off home run to win the ALCS for the Yankees to put them in the World Series for the first time since 1964. And, the, you know, wild scene at, the, at Yankee Stadium. Crowd rushed the field and... You know, chase Chambliss and try to like you know get every like they try to steal his hat and all the stuff and it was just it was wild wild seeing Yankee Stadium, and then they promptly lose to the uh, Cincinnati Reds four games to none, getting swept by the big red machine and Rose and Bench and all those guys. But it was a good moment because the Yankees finally made it back to the World Series, and then seventy seven everything changes. Reggie Jackson comes to the Yankees. What did Steinbrenner pay him? $3 million, I believe. I believe it was three. And he got a lot of hell for it. Yeah. Like, they did, like, why are you paying this guy $3 million? You know, like, one thing you have to understand, uh, free agency started in 76, right? And unlike the old school owners like Bill Veck and Charlie Finley, who... Love them to death, but like they just didn't have enough money to compete with free agency. They didn't really like it. George Steinbrenner had the resources. He embraced free agency. He didn't care how much money he spent. As long as it's going to help him win a championship, he did not care. So he he spent out and got Reggie Jackson. And like they're, you know, the ESPN made a, I guess it's a docuseries about it back in 2007 called The Bronx is Burning. And it's about you know the Yankee season and what was going on in New York then because disco was happening and the blackout and mm-hmm. you know Ed Koch is running for mayor and, and the uh, the Son of Sam murders. I mean it was just it, it's a good I, I enjoyed it when it came out, but man it was something else. Man, it was, and Reggie Jackson didn't make the best first impression with his team. No, he did. Because well, they went to spring training in '77. Yep, and. Um, he alienated his teammates with some remarks about their captain, Thurman Munson. Mm-hmm. Great Thurman Munson. Um, I guess he had bad blood with the manager, Billy Martin, who had managed the Tigers. And when their A's defeated him in the 72 playoffs, Jackson, Martin, and Steinbrenner, you know, they all... because of the, They had beef because of that. And then Jackson, Martin, and Steinbrenner all just didn't agree the entirety of his contract there with the Yankees. Yeah. Which was five years, yeah. for three million dollars, which was prime money right. back I mean, then. It was, it's not that two hundred and seventy million dollar over four we're getting now. Right, you know, I mean, just it was big money back in the day, and of course, you know, we all remember that scene in Boston. I think it was in June of '77, where, you know, Billy Martin thought that Reggie Jackson was not hustling. And he he calls he sends somebody out there to be a substitute for him during the game, you know. And Reggie's not thrilled about this, and he goes into the dugout, and he is he and Billy Martin are just going at it. They are yelling at each other. They about come to blows. They had to be separated. I mean, it's on YouTube. You know, people show it all the time. Through you know, '77 was a hell of a season. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, you know, there's so much drama. And this was, I guess, the beginning of the Bronx Zoo that Sparky Lyle and all of them 
made up and just it was crazy and George Steinbrenner was in the middle of all of it you know but 77 there was triumph Yankees once again win the American League pennant beating the uh, Kansas City Royals again three games to two you have to understand Royals were a great team late 70s early 80s you know George Brett great guy great player you know so not like today. Today they suck. But, you know, back in the day, the Royals were great. George Brett cheated too much Panta. <laughs> well, we can get to that, too. But that doesn't really have to... That doesn't, That's, really, no, it, that uh, doesn't really involve Steinbrenner. I'm just talking trash. That's one of my favorite YouTube yeah. videos to ever watch. If I'm ever having a bad day. Let's just watch George Brett melt yeah. down about my bad day. Yeah, so <laughs> they, so the Yankees' overall record, they did better than they did last year, the, the previous season. They... Win a hundred games, they win a hundred wins, sixty-two losses. And like I said, they they beat the Royals in the ALCS, and now they play the Los Angeles Dodgers, led by a youngish Tommy Lasorda. You know, and that was the first time. Well, actually, no, the Dodgers were in the World Series in '74, but that was with Walter Austin. But like, the Dodgers had like a good young team. They had like Steve Garvey, and they had uh, Ron Say, and they had all these other guys. And the Yankees win in six games. They beat the Dodgers to win their first World Series since 1962. Yeah, and it, um, it, it's one of those really good, like, you got to take advantage of playing at home situations because they lost two on the road. They didn't have home field advantage. They lost the first two in L.A., mm-hmm. but they swept at home. Yeah. Leaving them with one game to win on the <laughs> road. And they won game Six. Yeah, so. and I believe that's the game that Reggie Jackson hit three home runs and gained the Mister October nickname. It is. Um, and so, just and that gave them their twenty second World Championship. So they had twenty one of their twenty seven before Steinbrenner took over. Yeah, and so you know that's number twenty one, no twenty second. Excuse me, number twenty two. Steinbrenner is world champion. He, like we said, he has a national, a a college national. I'm sorry. National championship ring with Ohio State. He's got an ABL ring with the Cleveland Pipers. And now he's accomplished something. You know, he's accomplished the World Series. He's a World Series championship owner. You know, he is living high on the hog. I'd make a lot of uh, secessions to have a damn World Series ring. Right. And so, 1978 rolls around the next year. So the Yankees repeat again. As American League champs and World Series championships, they win 100 games just like the previous season. And, and this is before the full 162 game season, correct? Right. This was actually playing. no. This was 162 game season because it started in 1961 with okay. expansion. Okay, I thought it was a little later than that. That's right, my, because, my apologies on that. Because one. because they did 162 because you know Roger Maris has an asterisk by his mark because Fort Frick was a dumbass and decided well, we're going to put an asterisk on the mark because he didn't do it in like 160 games or what 154 games would be roofed so we're doing 162 games so this season was tumultuous this is where things are getting crazy with the managers Billy Martin he goes 52 and 42 and he gets fired that's a big name right Billy Dick Martin that's a big name yeah Dick Hauser who would later become the head baseball coach at Florida State he was like the bench coach at the Yankees, and he played. He managed one game, 
and he was on one. And then he they 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 hire a guy named Bob Lemon, who's in the Hall of Fame. He was a pitcher for the Cleveland Indians when they won the World Series in '48. Him and Bob Feller, the two Bobs, they were a great pitching combination. He becomes the manager of the Yankees, and he finishes with a 48 and 20 record. Now this is the year that the Yankees and Red Sox end up tied in the AL East, and they have to play that one-game playoff at Fenway where Bucky Dent hints that home run to win it for the Yankees, right? And then once again, 78, they play, sorry, 78, they play, um, they play the Dodgers again, you know? Of course, in the LCS, they also played the Royals again, but they beat them three to one, uh, they beat him in four games instead of five games the previous two years. And so they played the dot so they played the Dodgers World Series. And once again, Yankees win four games to two over the Dodgers. Once again, back to back World Series champions. I mean, despite the the tumult with the manager situation, Steinbrenner is on top again, you know. But then we get to seventy nine and man, seventy nine was was a rough season for the Yankees. Bob Levin goes third. <laughs> they 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 finished fourth in the AL East with the 89-71 record. Bob Lemon is the manager for half the season. He goes 34 and 31. He gets fired and replaced by Billy Martin. This is stint number two for Billy. Billy finishes the year with 55 40, 55 wins and 40 loss record. And this was a very, very tough year for the Yankees because the beloved captain of the Yankees catcher Thurman Munson dies in away a, and when he crashed his private plane yeah he, he go, on an off day he uh he, he goes to his hometown of Canton Ohio and flies a plane and he uh crashes the plane yeah he was practicing um touch and go landings yeah and then four days after his death, the entire Yankees team flew out to Canton. Yeah, and in the book... Even though they had a game that night against the Orioles. And um, Martin, Billy Martin, admitted that the funeral was more important than they didn't give a damn whether they made it back to the game or not. Right, you know, I mean, just... I don't think anybody was in the mood to play. You know what I'm saying? There was a guy named Bobby Mercer, a um, really close friend of Munson's, who was chosen to give the eulogy at his funeral. Yeah. It was nationally televised and an emotional game that night, and Mercer used... Bobby Mercer used Munson's bat and drove in all five of the teams around in a 5-4 walk-off. Wow. So that's some... That's some mojo right there. Yeah, I mean, it was just a... Yeah, that's awesome. Now... On the day that Munson passed away, Steinbrenner was in a meeting with a couple of financial advisors in his Yankee Stadium office when he was interrupted by his executive assistant, Jerry Murphy, informing him that he had a phone call. He said, Steinbrenner said, and I quote, God damn it, I don't, I told you I don't want to be disturbed. And uh, Murphy said, I know, sir, but this call seems urgent. It's somebody from the sheriff's office in Canton, Ohio. And I'm reading from the book. A sudden chill went through Steinbrenner. And he says, I'll take it. Steinberg picked up the phone, and as he listened to the voice on the other end, and ang- the angry expression on his face began to fade. Oh, no, he said. Oh, oh my God, no. A few moments later, after a few moments, Steinberg hung up the phone and turned to his two accountants. I'm sorry, he said, eyes tearing up. We have to end this meeting. 
There's been a terrible tragedy. We've lost Thurman. Gone. Plane crash. I have to get more details. So this was, you know, unexpected. This was a terrible tragedy for the Yankees. You know, and there was a great, there was that great um, cartoon that I think Bill Gallo did or somebody did from New York Daily News where these kids, like, there's a, an image of Furman up in the sky. Like, his face is, like, you know, leaning down, eyes eyes closed, leaning down, and it's raining, and the kids are like, I don't want to play today or something like that. It was a great, great little cartoon because Thurman passed away. So, um, to this day in the Yankees clubhouse, he has a locker mm-hmm. with just catcher's equipment in it. Yeah. And it remains there. Um, he's a member of the Monument Park for the New York Yankees. Yeah. He was the captain for three years, three-time Gold Glove winner. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1970. Yeah. He was the American League MVP in 76. Two World Series rings, 77-8, which we just talked about, them going back-to-back. Yep. And he was a seven-time All-Star, 71, and then 73-78. to 78. So that's a little homage to Thurman Munson. Yeah, I mean, just one of the best, you know. I mean... And people think you should be in the Hall of Fame, and that's another discussion for another time because I I don't care about. I'm not sure if he had enough of a career to get into the Hall of Fame, but his numbers were. Yeah, I mean, nah. if he played long enough, he could have been, you know. He was a good ball player. He, over his career, he was a 292 hitter. He had 113 dingers and drove in a 701. Um, he's obviously one of the best in the league's position for a long time, but. But I'm sure you know if Gil Hodges can get in the Hall of Fame. I'm sure somebody can try to get Furman Munson in the Hall of Fame. He might end up on one of those legacy books. Yeah. I mean, somebody's going to push really hard. Anyway, so 79 was not a great year for the Yankees. So 1980. Oh, man. So 1980. They fired Billy Martin again. They fired Billy again because <laughs> reasons. And then Dick Hauser. Yeah. he They got him back. I think he was at Florida State. Yeah, so. Or he was going to be head coach of Florida State or something like that. So they get Dick Hauser from Florida State. They win 103 games. They win 103 and 59. They win the AL East easily. They did a lot better than they did in 77, 78. But they lose in three straight in the ALCS to the Kansas City Royals and George Brett. And the and the Royals went on to lose to the Phillies that year. And the Phillies won their first ever World Series after. 97 years of existence or something like that. And so, as you can imagine, George Steinbrenner was not happy about that. And so he fired Dick Hauser after that blowout of a uh, ALCS. So now 81... I love George Steinbrenner. Get it done and you're gone. Yeah. So 81, they win the... So 81 was the year of the strike. Right. The 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 strike in the middle of the season it disrupted everything. It was eighty one was a dumpster fire because of that. And we can we're going to talk about that in another episode about different strikes. You know? Yeah, I've got we got a list of stuff we want to talk about, and with what's going on in baseball now, that'll come up yeah. soon. So all together, so here's how this went down that year. Overall, the Yankees finished with a 59 and 48 record. They finished fourth. Altogether, they finished fourth in the AL East. The first half, they finished in first place with a 34 and 22 record. The second half, they finished with a 25 26 record. So they started the year with a guy named Gene Michael as manager, and he goes 48 and 34. And they fire him, and they hire Bob Lemon back again. He goes 11 and 14. 
for the rest of the year. Um, and so because of the strike, they this is what they did. They had four teams in the they had four teams in each league in the playoffs. So this is where the the divisional series comes in for the first time. Not like the '90s, but like I guess it was mainstay in the '90s. But this is where, because of the strike-shortened season, this is where the divisional plane comes in. The Yankees beat the Milwaukee Brewers in five games for the ALDS. Right, they beat Ted Simmons and Robin Yount and Paul Molitor's Milwaukee Brewers. Right, and then they beat the Oakland A's, led by Billy Martin, at that time. I believe, yeah, Billy Martin was the A's manager. <laughs> uh, in 1981, and now Billy Martin's from Oakland, so this was his hometown. You know, he's back home. They beat the Oakland A's and Billy Martin, I think, in three straight. Yeah, it was in three straight. Uh, hold on a second. My phone's being stupid. Yeah, so they won three straight against the Oakland A's. They once again play the Los Angeles Dodgers in the World Series. But they run into a brick wall known as Fernando Valenzuela because it's Fernando Mania. We're going to have to do an episode about him. Yeah. And that story. Yeah, it's great. That's a great... Wasn't there a 30 for 30 about that? Is that yeah, was? there was. Fernando Mania. Yeah, yeah, that is... Or Fernando Nation, yeah. Yeah, it's a heck of a story. Yeah. And so the Dodgers and Tommy Lasorda and Fernando and... Ron... I love Tommy Lasorda. Uh, man, it was, was a sad day when he died last year. I know year. it. I thought, I thought he just loved baseball. Was a big time goofball, wanted baseball. Like, yeah, I mean, he was just a guy. He was a character. I mean, as a man's man. Yeah. So he won the World Series. No, the, the sorry, the Dodgers won the World Series against the Yankees, four games to two. Tommy Lasorda's got his World Series ring as a manager. Everything's great in L.A. New York, not so much. Now this is where I mean. This is the last time the Yankees, I think, made the World Series. This is the last time the Yankees made the World Series until 96. Spoiler alert. Now we're going through another dark age of Yankee baseball. Right? Not Maybe not as bad as the late 60s, early 70s. But this is another dark age. This is and, where... And it's going to be a lot of Steinbrenner turning and burning his staff. Right. I mean, like, you know... And then... Yeah. And then the Dave Winfield uh, controversy... Well, in all of my research about Steinbrenner coming into this, there's a quote that um, one of the original minorities, a guy named John McMullen, said. Yeah. And it was like, there's nothing in life quite so limited as to being a limited partner of George Steinbrenner. Like, you're going to get hired, you're going to get fired, you're going to get rehired, and you're going to get fired again. Yeah. Now, at one point, I'm trying to remember what year it was, sometime in the 80s, Al Rosen who tried to buy the Cleveland Indians with George Steinbrenner and others, Al Rosen gets to be the GM for one year. And then he quit after a year because he just couldn't take it anymore. He's like, I don't want to deal with this crap. And like it, it broke Steinbrenner's heart because he loved Al Rosen, you know, because he grew up in Cleveland. Al Rosen played for the Indians. You know, he was a great player. He tried for to buy the Indians. Yeah. I mean, like they know. had a history together and he was heartbroken that Al Rosen had like one year and he was like, I, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. So now the Yankees are in the dark, another dark age where they're not going to the World Series. So 82, and that 82 is also the year that Reggie Jackson leaves the Yankees to go to the California Angels. Uh, so next year, 82, they finish in fifth place. Bob Lemon's the manager. He 
he lasts like 14 games. He's like six and eight. And then he gets replaced by Gene Michael. Gene Michael comes back again and he goes 44 and 42. And then Gene Michael gets replaced in the, near the end of the season with a guy named Clyde King. And he goes 29 and 33. All together, they finished, the Yankees finished in fifth place with a 79 83 record. Oh, man. 83. <laughs> Just. 83, they do better. They go 91 and 71, and they finish third in the AL East. And Billy Martin's the manager again, but he stays the whole season. He Steinberg leaves him alone for the rest of the season, for that whole season. 84, Billy Martin's gone, and now Yogi Bear is the manager. And they go in third place with an 87 75 record. 1985, Yogi Bear gets fired after 16 games at the beginning of the season. Now, and this started a rift between Yogi Berra and George Steinbrenner that lasted until 1999. After that, Yogi Berra refused to come back to Yankee Stadium until Steinbrenner was gone. Like, he did not want anything to do with the Yankees or Steinbrenner. He, you know, and and after that, like, in the late 80s, he was a coach for the uh, Houston Astros. But, like, mm-hmm. he wanted nothing to do with the Steinbrenners because... Because he fired Yogi, because he got fired like that, I guess Yogi felt insulted that you know he got fired. That yeah, that and it seems like George wasn't one to give a damn about your feelings, right? You know, if I don't feel like you have a place here, there's the door. We'll catch you on the other side. Yeah, Yogi felt disrespected, and so he said, "I want nothing to do with the Yankees." Of course, that ended in 1999, but you know, this is where. Yogi and Steinbrenner had a very big riff. And so after 16 games, Billy Martin comes back. I think it's stint number four. Yeah, he was, he was high, yeah. he, um, he's employed five times. Yeah, and that was the year that he, it was that year or 86 that he got his uh, monument at Yankee Stadium. And uh, it's in the book Billy Ball, which I own, and I, I enjoy reading that. It's, it's a good uh, autobiography. And the Yankees finished second place with a 97-64 record. So, but still short, you know, they're not going to make the playoffs. You know, this 86. Okay. So it wasn't 85 because 86 Lou Pinella is the manager. Lou Pinella. Lou Pinella, who played for the Yankees in 77 and 78. He was part of those teams. I he, love Lou Pinella. He was, yeah, I love Lou Pinella too. He was portrayed in Bronx's Burning. I don't remember who portrayed him, but he was in Bronx's Burning. Somebody portrayed him in Bronx's Burning. And they finished in second place in the East with a 90 and 72 record. Now, like these Yankees, they had Dave Winfield and they had Don Mattingly, right? Another guy that people want to push to get into the Hall of Fame. But again, he didn't play long enough and he has no World Series rings from the Yankees. And, you know, I mean, he's a good player, but, you know. Yeah, he's not a Hall of Fame guy. Right. I mean, that. He might get in on the Legends Committee. Isn't that what they're called? The Legends Committee? I think it's Legends, yeah. I still refer to him as the Veterans Committee. But um, he might get in on that one day just because of his yeah. lifetime contribution. Right. But now, let's hold on. He doesn't have the stats either way to get there, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, man. Lou Pinella, still the manager. They finished in fourth place with an 89 and 73 record. Good for Lou. He stayed for two seasons, like two consecutive seasons. 1988. So, Lou Pinella gets replaced with Billy Martin to start the year. This is Billy Martin's last stint with the Yankees. 
before his untimely death in 1989 in a car crash uh, on Christmas Day in 1989. Hmm. It's unfortunate. Yeah, Nikolai Ceausescu, the, the, the dictator of Romania, gets gets uh, uh, executed on Christmas Day 1989, and then Billy Martin dies in a car crash. Christmas Day 1989. And, oh, and Huntsville snowed that day, too. Huntsville got snow in Christmas... That was a that was a crazy <laughs> that was a crazy Christmas that year. Anyway, oh yeah, so yeah, Christmas Day '89 was something crazy, you know. Like I said, Nikolai Ceausescu getting executed, Billy Martin dying in a car crash, and our hometown of Huntsville, Alabama, got snow. Of course, Patrick and I weren't born yet; we were born the next year. So, anyway, so going back to the '88. Jesus, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Somebody's trying to sell me a car warranty. <laughs> anyway, so going back to the 88 season, right? Billy Martin, in his fifth and final stint with the Yankees as manager, he goes 40 and 28, and he gets replaced by Lou Pinella, who was, you know, manager the previous two seasons. And Steinbrenner thought, yeah, let's get Lou Pinella back in. Why not? And Lou finishes the year with a 45 48 record. Altogether, the Yankees finished in fifth place with an 85 and 76 record. So now we go to 1989. You know, uh, let's see, and they finished in fifth with a 74 and 87 record. Lou Pinella is gone. They hire former Philadelphia Phillies manager Dallas Green, and I believe he led the Phillies to the World Series in 1980. He was the manager for that, I believe. And Dallas Green, unlike his 1980 Phillies, was not very successful with the 89 Yankees. He goes 56 and 65 uh, before being replaced for the last, excuse me, 40 games of the season with Mr. 1978 home run Bucky Dent. And Bucky Dent finished the year with an 18 and 22 record. So this is the end of the 1980s. other than 1981 and 1980-81, the Yankees did not make the playoffs in any of those years. They were either pretty good to bad, and Steinbrenner is just meddling with the owners, and everybody's just on his butt. Like they're just like, what is this guy doing? Why is he changing managers so much? You know, why why are all these manager changes? I mean, just Steinbrenner was a meddler. He meddled in things. He had to have his hands on everything that's going on with the Yankees, and whether it be that or shipbuilding or what have you. He, that's what Big he did. Part of his reputation yeah. is wheeling and dealing. Yeah. So, just like the Connie Mack episodes, this is going to be a two-parter. It's, we didn't plan on it, but it happened. <laughs> right. There was just a lot to talk about, and. I apologize for not quoting enough from the book. Like I said, it's been seven years since I read this book. I read it on a cruise to Bahamas with my family. Great book. Loved it. And I apologize for not quoting enough from the book like I did with the Connie Mack books. So I plan so I plan to reread this, you know, in between now and the next episode and try to quote more from the book in the next episode. And I may also bring in uh, for the next episode, the, my book, uh, the the Joe Torrey book, The Yankee Years, and get his insight about certain things. You know, reread that too, and we could quote from that book as well. 
So the next episode is going to be about the 90s and the the last few years of Steinbrenner's rule. And there's a lot of little Steinbrennerisms that the Yankees still follow. Yeah. Such as the facial hair policy and stuff like that that I'd like to get into also. So there's I, this, think, I think it'll be a good wrap-up of it. We can get into that and get into the 90s, which is the Yankees that me and Matthew really know. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know you're a lot more into the historical part, but I'm I'm more keen of what I saw, which is kind of where we differentiate and yeah. come together on this podcast. So. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about Steinbrenner being banned by Major League Baseball. Because oh, of, the, Dane Wid- the Dave Winfield yeah, deal. Yeah, the Dave Winfield deal. we got to talk about that. Then we're going to start the next episode with that, because that happens in 1990, which is the year that Patrick and I were born. And then we'll get to all that, and then we'll get to the the new the, the new dynasty of the Yankees, and then talk about the. I thought we were getting into where um, the boss is getting fun, right? You know, and then talk at about, least historically, making himself more interesting, yeah. and talk about how he wanted to build the new Yankee Stadium, and then talk about you know them winning the World Series in the first year of the new Yankee Stadium, and then talk about his and then talk about his death in nineteen uh, sorry two thousand ten. So, Steinbrenner... It doesn't seem like it's been that long, does it? It really doesn't. It's just, you know, I, I'll i talk about this in the next episode. I mean, I remember where I was when Steinbrenner died, and I'll mention that in the next episode. So, yeah. But, yeah, just a lot to talk about Steinbrenner. He had a big, big impact on the game of baseball like Connie Mack did. As Matthew and I talked before we recorded the episode, he was the last true baseball owner. Right, because most of these owners... They're either corporations or yeah. they're in there with seventeen other dudes. And the only the only people that I the only owners that I know. He are, owned the team because he wanted to damn win. Right, like but current owners, the only ones I know are like John Henry of Boston Red Sox, the Ted Ricketts and his family with the Cubs, and Artie Moreno of the Angels. I don't know anybody else who owns there. Like the Braves are owned by like Liberty Media. Mark Cuban. Oh, but he was the Mavericks. He doesn't own baseball. Right? Right, right, okay, okay. I was thinking other yeah, sports. Yeah, I was, I was thinking like baseball. But, you know. It's yeah, just... the rest of them. Um, Derek Jeter's in an ownership group. Matthew Johnson's in a group with the Dodgers. Um... Yeah. It's just, you know, I mean, just it's mostly corporations. There's not one big strongman owner. You become too big of a business as opposed to. Right. You know, it, but you have, but it's like corporations and groups of ownership groups have money. You know, and you can't be one guy, a one-man operation, and own a team, because there's just so much money that you can't financially have. You got to have other investors. You know, one thousand percent agree. Yeah, and Steinbrenner had investors initially. Well, he bought the team for ten million, and then after seeing or um, NB, was it CBS bought those two parking garages back from for one point two million. He paid eight point eight million for the Yankees. Yeah, you know. and what was it worth when he died? You know, a lot. You know, we'll we'll get to that too. Sports are different. You can't. No individual, like you know, like Elon Musk or Bezos or somebody could buy a team. But yeah, it it takes a lot to buy a team these days. It does. There's a lot. So yeah, I mean Steinbrenner. This is going to be a two part episode because you try to get. If we try to talk about everything today, it's going to be two hours. And who wants to listen to a two hour podcast? You know. We'll catch you. We'll catch you next time with the second half of this. But we do appreciate y'all listening in to Baseball History One Hundred and One. Yeah, as Patrick, um, we hit a thousand episodes. We hit a thousand streams after our last episode, and we really appreciate that. And we're up to a, almost a hundred subscribers. We're getting close. Yeah, and we appreciate y'all supporting us. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, 
As always, there's an uh, email address, baseballhis101 at gmail.com if you want to submit a topic. Yeah. Nobody has yet. Um, yeah. Or just hit us up on social media or out on the street, you know, yeah. like and, um, Ian did. <laughs> I was messaging back and forth with him a day on Facebook. Oh, cool. Um, but um, thank you always for supporting us. We're on all the major streaming platforms. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify, Apple, Apple. Podcasts. Um, we're on oh, Anchor. Anchor. We're on Stitcher. We're on the one that, whatever the one Russell listens on. Yeah, I think it starts with O. I can't remember. But sorry, Russell. <laughs> but we'll uh, we appreciate y'all tuning in. I look forward to y'all coming back for uh, part two of the George Steinbrenner story. Yep. Thank you very much. Can't wait. We'll see y'all next time. See ya. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski Vanilla talking baseball The man and Bobby Fella The scooter, the barber and the nuke They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque Especially Willie Mickey and the Duke Well Casey was winning Hank Aaron was beginning One Robbie going out, one coming in Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke And me, I always loved Willie Mann Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Quees and Barry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke, they'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. It was Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey. I'm talking with.